recording. So basically, we'll just um, kind of frame it here. It was eight months, eight years, not even eight months, eight years ago <laughs> this weekend that you and I ran in the Rotterdam Marathon. Uh, that was a race that changed your life uh, in a big way, obviously, because it got you your Olympic qualifier. Changed my life also in less huge ways but it definitely was a life-changing event uh, i just wanted to talk a little bit about that as we you know it's like because all these races are happening and we've had a lot of experience in these races so a lot of you know fond memories and things so yeah let's just talk about rotterdam 2012 how we got to there and what happened after that with the race kind of being the uh the center of it all kind of the linchpin of a, a movement of sorts a pivot in our lives um, <laughs> so obviously yourself um talk a little bit about what got you to like the build up towards rotterdam and how that race became a race for you yeah i mean i think in going back a number of years prior uh you know i hoped to qualify for the olympics in 2008 didn't happen i ran my first marathon actually in rotterdam as well uh i ran 215 there didn't make the team and then uh, just kind of was still plugging away after that and keeping the dream, the dream alive. Um, eventually moved out to Vancouver to, to continue to try and take my running to, to the next level. And then uh, we, you know, that kind of would bring me up to 2010, fall of 2010. And um, I kind of got that breakthrough. I ran to 12, uh, at the California Marathon, and then, then to win the California fall, to win the California Marathon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was definitely a, a good day for me. Um, I think I led all but the very first mile of that race, so it was uh, it was a good experience and gave me a lot of confidence. And kind of for me was the big turning point in in the Olympics, just kind of being a dream to being something that uh, was a very real possibility if I, if I put my, put my mind to it. Um, and yeah, I took, took a shot in the fall of 2011, I guess it was in, in Toronto. Were you in that race as well, Rob? Was that the super windy day? Yes. That was, that was the day where we, we turned the corner at 30 K and the wind just was ridiculous. Insane. Yeah. I dropped, yeah, I, dro that was that I, day. I dropped out of that race at about 30 K. Right. Just hung it on the beaches for a little while until I got picked up by the meat wagon. Oh, <laughs> uh, that course in Toronto is so tough when you drop out. It's like, what do you, what do you do? You're so far, so far from home. Dude, I, I got back to like, I got back to like the elite staging area, like four hours later. And, uh, and like, I was like, there was like nobody there. It was, it was and like my phone and everything was there and my parents thought I was dead and it was, it was awful. I should have just, I should have just jogged the rest of it. But now, now I know dropping out of a marathon, it doesn't get you to the finish line any quicker. That's for sure. Uh, no doubt make, about it. Make sure, uh... it just, you have so much time just to think about how you made a poor decision and it was cold and you're just in your gear. Oh man. I've actually dropped out of the, Mar the Toronto Marathon a time or two. But uh, well, anyways, anyways, what did you go on that day? Because Reed, Reed got his qualifier that day. Did he not? Yeah, both Reed and Eric did. That was, uh, I think Reed ran 210 uh, and Eric ran one second under the qualifying time. Oh, yeah, because so, Reed, Reed had got his qualifier the year before. Did he right. not? He because I, I, paced yeah, him he, he, I, I paced him when he got his qualifier. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, uh, Reed had done it the year before and Eric did it that year. Yeah. And I guess just to set kind of the, the context of, of where we were at, um, with Canadian marathoning, then it was no one, Canada hadn't sent a male or female to the Olympics since I might, you might have to correct me here, but I, I don't think since 96, it might've been 2000. Um, maybe Bruce Deacon went in 2000 for the men. So there was kind of a big gap there where um, we didn't have anyone running the qualifying for the marathon and kind of leading up to, 
2012, there was, you know, more and more excitement. I think running was catching on again. Social media was just starting to be a thing. Uh, publications like Canadian Running were kind of getting their start, and there seemed to actually be quite a bit of interest in yeah. what what was going on. And, yeah. it, you know, the, there was the interest because uh, because of those factors, but also because people were actually – uh, running, running really well. Yeah. And, and that year, the qualifying, um, the, it was two eleven thirty, right. You had to run two eleven thirty. like the athletics Canada made this standard. Uh, you know, I think the actual Olympic standard was like two eighteen, but athletics Canada makes it two eleven thirty. So that standard came out. Everyone was like, Oh man, that's, that's really fast. Canadian hasn't run that fast in years and years and years. And then it was time to kind of buckle down and go for it um yeah so i was training with those guys with reed and eric and seeing what they were doing um so so 2011 sorry yeah so the year before uh with toronto toronto didn't quite work out so right. then, you have, then you have to reload and reframe for another attempt um in in the winter so where where, where, yeah. where did that lead you to yeah, I think Toronto, I ran about, I think I ran just under 213, 212 something. And that was, a, that was kind of a bit of a disappointment. And it was kind of a, I wouldn't say it was a wake up call, but it was just kind of the point where I was like, okay, I really have to do everything I possibly can to, to give myself a shot at, at making the, the Olympic team. So, um, packed up Francine's car. She, well, my wife, Francine, she wasn't my wife at the time, but I took her car and I drove down to Flagstaff, Arizona. And uh, luck, luckily, the you know the running community, um, similar to it is now, then was pretty tight knit. And I got in touch with uh, a guy I knew loosely, uh, Andrew Lemoncello. Uh, Lemon, as as most people in the in the running world refer to him, and uh, just asked him if he knew anywhere that I could live, and I was going to go down there and train. And <laughs> luckily. He had uh, him and his wife at a house, and they kind of um, had the intent of, of renting out rooms. So they rented me a room, and I went down there to put in uh, a training block for uh, for my next attempt. And I was supposed to – well, I actually went, and uh, my marathon was in Japan, uh, the Lake Biwa Marathon, which is in uh, – usually it's early March. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that was the plan. And, uh, I, you know, I think we wanted to, I mean, you, you could ask Rich why we wanted to run one. It was kind of earlier than the usual spring marathons. In my mind, it was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm running this race because it's a bit earlier, and I'm going to make the time. I'm going to make this team, and it's going to give me uh, more recovery time to, to actually get ready to run well in the Olympics. Um, maybe in, in Rich's mind, it was like, let's run one early in case it doesn't go well and then we have some more options later in the spring um if you had that hindsight that's great because that's that's what (laughs) that's that's what happened uh on the day for me in uh in japan i went there probably in you know definitely in in the best shape of my life there was my first big stint training at altitude and staff. i'd gone A couple, I think I'd gone twice previously for kind of three or four weeks leading up to like outdoor track season and never really ran that well, kind of bombed a couple 10Ks, I think, after having been up there. But this is the first time I was there for three months and just focused just on training and uh, I was in great shape. But uh, I, yeah. I just had I just had some stomach issues in uh, in Lake Biwa. Basically, it's like, yeah, you, know, you know, stomach issues. Always, what what does that mean? It's like basically, I was just crapping my pants the <laughs> the Jeez. entire race. And, do you, do you, uh, yeah. like? Did you know why that was? It like was it like you went to Japan to eat something or? How yeah. That- you know what? It was it was funny because I've been to Japan a couple of times before, and I was like, okay, I'm comfortable with going to Japan. Um, I went and did the Chiba Ekaden, which people that are listening to this probably a lot of people don't remember, but it's now a now defunct race. But it used to be an international competition over the marathon distance, and you had three men and three women that made up the team from from each country. So I'd gone and done that a couple of times, but the setup for that was 
was great because they just put us in the, the this place called the uh the, the Nihon Aerobic Center and it's basically this just big like sports facility similar to like a 40th uh out, out in Burnaby now yeah um and they basically had all the meals taken care of and all that stuff and like they had the Japanese food they also had the western food and whereas when I went to like Biwa they they basically just handed me a big wad of cash for per diem and we're like <laughs> you know they put me they put me up in the race hotel but and i think maybe they served breakfast at the race hotel and you could kind of get standard foods but anyway long story short i was kind of left to my own devices to figure out where to eat and this is you know uh where the lake view marathon is it's not a tourist town really so there's not there wasn't i would go to like restaurants just on the street and there was mm-hmm. uh you know the menus weren't in English. So I was just kind of guessing. And um, so, yeah, the night before I went to a place that was like an Italian place and I was just kind of like guessing at what to eat. And like the, the first, the first dish got was like this pasta that had some seafood through it. And I was like, ah, I don't think I should eat this, but I just like picked through it and didn't eat the seafood, but ate the pasta. And I think that just kind of, yeah rocked my rocked my stomach and um i remember the morning of the race before i was like going to the bathroom like every 20 minutes i was like oh man this this is not gonna go well uh and sure enough i think you know i ended up dropping out by about i think i made it to i think i first tried to drop out at 25k but there was like nowhere to go nothing to do i'm like i guess i'll just keep running made it to 30k (laughs) and then (laughs) and then eventually like literally had you know, shit running down my legs. Uh, some guy, some old Japanese guy that uh, had a hose out, like a gar- his garden hose, brought over his garden hose and like hosed me down. It was ridiculous. <laughs> that's, that sounds like, that's awful. Like, cause I, I, yeah. I remember you were, you were super fit. Like obviously like, cause everyone was trying to get their times and everything. And so everyone's got an eye on how the other competitors are doing. Cause you would just like, you had just crushed the first half here in Vancouver as like a tempo run, right? Like heading into that race. Was that that year you just tempoed it and it ran like 64 yeah. minutes? Yeah. Yeah, it was in really good shape. Yeah, I ran uh, 64 low at the first half. And I think a couple of weeks prior to that, I ran 62.40 um, all by myself in the, in the Phoenix, rock and roll mm-hmm. Phoenix half. So yeah. I knew it was in really good shape. And uh, honestly, uh, in – I don't know if what our plan really was. I don't remember, but I I wanted to break the Canadian record that day in Lake Biwa. I was pretty confident that uh, that I was in shape to do that, but obviously it didn't uh, didn't happen. That's the that's the thing about running, man. Is, is you prepare, you prepare, you put in the work, you put in the work, and then some days the day is just like no pun intended. It's just a shitty day, and it's it can be frustrating. So obviously Biwa was a disaster. Uh, yeah. You know. Physically, you're still in great shape. Mentally, you're probably pretty rocked. So, what was the thought process after that race? Yeah, you're you're exactly right. Physically, I remember looking looking back uh, a couple of years later at my training, and I I ran, um, you know, I think 100 miles the the week after the race. I ran 15 miles the the day after because I ran. You know, it was like a you know a good tempo run, but uh, yeah, kind of emotionally and mentally, I was. I was done. I really put all of my eggs in uh, in that basket for Lake Biwa, and I just couldn't wrap my head around um, taking another shot. Even though there was time to take another shot, I was really uh, not not in it. I think I flew back to Vancouver and kind of sulked around for a few days, and then uh, uh, Richly, my coach, just kind of sat me down and was like. Listen, you're just, you just got to get your head back in the game. You will have so many regrets if you don't take another shot at this. Um, and so I think, I think I gave it a few more days. Uh, and then I, I, I kind of came around and realized that, yeah, you know, I would, I would have too many regrets if I didn't, didn't get back on the horse and, uh, and do it again. Um, so that's what, that's what led to, to Rotterdam Marathon, where we uh, crossed paths. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I remember because uh, I was training for Rotterdam. Rotterdam was my goal race for that season. I was training down in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. 
uh, just to escape the snow and the ice of Canada, Ontario, that time of year. And it was during that build that I split from working with uh, Dave up there in, in Guelph. Uh, we had a falling out and, uh, and it was a weird, it was a weird build for me, but I was, I was, I was as fit as I ever been in my life. I had run a PB in the New York city half. Of, I think I went 63. Oh, I went 63, 29, uh, four weeks out. And that was a 63, 29 run with a 14, 18 first five K. So Ooh. it was, that was a ridiculous race. I remember just like, you know, you hit, you, you know, in a half marathon, usually you get to like, usually you can get to about 10 or 11 K feeling all right. And then it starts to become a grind. Like this race, yeah. this race, I was already hurting at 4k. And I was like, Oh gosh. But, uh, fortunately I had about, I had a ton of like 150 mile weeks in my leg. So I was strong as hell. So I was able to just grind out. So I was, I was feeling pretty good heading into that during that buildup is when Dave and I broke up. Uh, and I started working with my brother, Pete, who had a lot of marathoning experience from his time working with the Kimbia group down in, down in Kenya. And, uh, so, um, his buddy, his That's buddy, um, got me into the race and, and then Rotterdam, I was all, I was fit. I was going there. And as I was training, like there was lots of rumors on like the message boards and stuff. It's like, we're hearing Dylan's going to go to Rotterdam. It's like, is Dylan going to go to Rotterdam? And nobody knew exactly what you were going to do. And then, yeah, I remember showing up in Rotterdam and lo and behold, you were there. I was there. Yeah, it was funny. It was a, it was a funny time. And what was, uh, were you super, you were pretty confident heading in? Like, how was the transition? Because um, that's a hard thing to do is, like, to split with one coach, start working with another coach. I mean, obviously, it's easier that it's your brother, someone you obviously know very well. But yeah. was, did you gain confidence from that? Or what was, what was kind of your mindset like? And how did that work? Yeah, I, I actually, I did. I needed that. I think, I think the separation was a long time coming. Uh, you know, that's why I was down in Chapel Hill training. Cause like, I just, I didn't need to do my own thing. There was times, there was times in when I was training in Guelph and I felt like I was a de facto, just pace rabbit for Reed and Eric. Um, obviously those guys were the big dogs and they were amazing runners, but sometimes I felt like the training wasn't for me. It was me just doing what they were doing. Uh, and you know, I felt like Dave didn't train me as an athlete. He just trained me as a generic marathoner. And, uh, and, right. you know, and like, like the breaking point was that he told me, he's like, he's like, at one point, it's like, he's like, yeah, for the next three weeks, just, uh, just go run 450 miles. So I'm like, all right, let's run 450 miles. So I went 140, 150, 160. And then I said in my training, he's like, why'd you run so much last? Like, why'd you run 160 miles? That's, that's reckless. That's stupid. I was like, you told me to run 450 miles. And if you do the math, this is 450 miles over the last three weeks. And then it was like, you're not really invested. Like, and anyways, long story short, we broke up. But I was, I knew I was fit. Yeah. I, knew I, was, I know I was working hard. And Pete was like, yeah, I got this. Don't worry. Like, he's like, show me what you've been doing. Um, I had confidence in Pete because he used to train a lot with Dieter Hogan. He was kind of Dieter Hogan's. Um, he worked with him as they were like, th that group was killed the marathon scene for in the, in the mid 2000s for a while. So he knew what he was doing. And he looked at my training That's with cool. Dave and he's like, yeah, okay, I got this. And he just, uh, he wrote me up the rest of the plan. So obviously a lot of my fitness heading into Rotterdam was the result of Dave's work. Right. Um, yeah. But Pete kind of fine tuned it and specified it to me. And I was, I was actually in a really good spot. Like I, I I'm an athlete who's like, I, I do, I'm kind of emotional. I work off vibes, but like, I knew I was just, I knew it was, it was like you, man. It was like, I got to do everything I can do. Cause this is my last shot. Like I was, I was all in or I was out of the sport. Um, right. So, so I was like, yeah, I was like, you know, I was like, I moved down to North Carolina, stayed there for a few months, was crushing, you know, up upwards of 180 miles a week. And yeah, so I, I arrived in, I arrived in Rotterdam super fit, but uh, also, I mean, I wouldn't say I was super confident because my PB heading in was, was only 216 and Rotterdam was only my third marathon. So I was still somewhat of a, of a green marathoner at the time. Um, but yeah, the race plan for Rotterdam was pretty simple. It was like, go and run to 11.30 pace for as long as you possibly can. Yeah, it was, uh, there was no other option really, was there? And I think uh, the setup there, as it turns out, was, uh, was really, really good because there was uh, a Dutch guy, 
Kuhn Raymakers. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and you know, we we thought the Canadian standards were were difficult to make the Olympics, uh, having to run two eleven thirty. But Kuhn had to run two ten flat to make the uh, the team for the Netherlands. Um, and it was kind of his his home race, even though he was he was one of those one of the first guys, uh, one of the first kind of Western guys to go to Kenya and live like he lived there. He had a house there, I think. His wife uh, is Kenyan, um, so, so he was training there. But the race was set up for him, at least the second – I guess we were the second pack. Um, yeah. It was really set up for him. So we were kind of we, – we were lucky to kind of pick – I guess we picked that – well, you probably – you can explain why you picked that race, but mostly because it's a, a flat, fast course, I assume. Yeah, it was it was where where do people run fast? Where is flat? Um, I also looked at a bunch of Japanese races, and I was like, how do people run to eleven thirty? I was like, oh, in Jap in Japan, a ton of people run to eleven thirty. I was like, oh, but they all go in sixty three minutes and then die. It's like I don't want to do that. Totally. Right? So I just I just went through like every every spring marathon and looked at a historic breakdown of like where to I didn't I didn't care what the winners ran. I was like, I want to know where the, if there was like that pack. Cause a lot of times in marathons, you have people like they'll go 205, 206, 208. And then all of a sudden, like the very few people run in that in between. And then a bunch of people run like, you know, high 216, 217. So Rotterdam flat course, generally the weather. I looked at like historical, like did all the, you know, mm-hmm. what is the historic weather on the day in Rotterdam here? Okay. It looks like it's pretty consistently nice weather. Uh, so things like that. And I remember the, uh, remember the, uh, the technical meeting before that race. It was hilarious. Because, uh, you know, usually they have like a pretty like dialed in technical meeting. They give you all the information. Like, here's where the shuttles are going to go to the start line. Here's like the bottles. Here's like all the information you need. But do you remember? They just like, they just showed like a video of um of the Kenyan big engine. What was his name? Moses. Oh, Mo- Moses Mosop. Moses Mosop. They pretty much just showed a, a, a training montage from him. And, and then they were like, he's going to try to run the world record. Oh, and by the way, here's the other pacing groups. Good luck. <laughs> it was like okay let's do this that's right that's right they were going for the world record so that's that was all that uh that the race organizers really cared about but uh i mean i guess luck luckily for us kuhn uh, was in that race as well yes. i think he he brought three of his own pacemakers um and then there was a spanish guy yep i have to uh i have to pull up the results here to recall his name but yeah, there was a Spanish guy in there as well who brought um, his his own pacer as well. So we had four pacers. Yeah. And maybe there was you and I and Kuhn and the Spanish guy. And I think there was a Polish guy in there too. And yep. maybe maybe a few others. So it was like, it it was pretty ideal. Oh yeah. I remember like, so let's go, let's, yeah, like, like head in. So obviously we get to Rotterdam, we connect, we confirm. Yes. Dylan is here. Uh, <laughs> I remember grabbing a coffee with Lee, Lee Troop. Um, and I always remember like, I think you ordered like a, a macchiato and in, in our, in our brains, we, we have a macchiato based on what a Starbucks macchiato is, but in Europe, coffee is very different. And it came in like a shot glass. <laughs> and you're, like, okay. I remember. <laughs> you're like, I'm going to need another one of these. Cause this is not, this is not exactly what I envisioned. But lead up to the race, right? And then, uh, and then race day comes. When Rotterdam Marathon, it's got the it's got the narrowest little start line of any like big race I've ever seen. It's like it just like you got like however many thousand people lined up on a two lane road, and there's no like real rhyme or reason to like it's just like it's just like a mass start, right? It's not like there's not like corrals, there's not like you know there's just there's just people on the start line so even like in the start it was just so many people were fighting for space trying to you know trying to get their way and and i remember the gun goes off and it's just pandemonium right it's just everyone's just running there's people everywhere and at about 800 meters you came flying by me just absolutely flying and all i heard was I fucking went down <laughs> and then you, like i think so what happened there at the start line yeah that was uh and that was a disaster yeah basically as you described it we were just packed in there as i recall it it was like 
the elites had a little bit of room kind of like uh, in front of the start line to, to kind of get ready, do some strides. But in, in the meantime, in kind of the five minutes before the race, the, the sub-elites, which maybe were supposed to have been kind of kept back, had just kind of crept up further and further towards the start line to the point where, you know, we had to try and push people back to get yeah. onto the start line ourselves. And, uh, yeah, the gun went off and, uh, I don't know, being this six foot to gangly, I guess you're, you're just as tall as I am, but, uh, <laughs> I, I got tripped, I got tripped up probably a hundred meters in and I was like flat on my face. And I, I, I thought for a split second, I was like, Oh, maybe they'll, uh, Maybe they'll call the race back and start again. It's like, no, no, no. There's, there's literally people running like over top of me. So uh, I probably took a second, got back up. And yeah, the adrenaline was just pumping. So at that point, I was probably, you know, there was probably at least 100 people in front of me, maybe 200. I don't know. And I, I think I probably ran a 210, 800 to, to, get, to catch back up and then, settle in <laughs> eventually I think you maybe told me to just like calm down settle in and uh those are probably the words that I needed to hear to just like get in the group and and regroup and it, 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 I did I think I had like blood on my knees uh scrape my elbow and stuff but it was just yeah luckily I got back to where I needed to be found the pack and and we were <laughs> we were off and you know crisis averted crisis crisis yes crisis word yeah i remember that you, you would blind by it and so i mean like we got into that group and uh and it was a big group it was it was like you were saying before it was ideal there was coon there was that polish guy there was a spanish guy i think that polish guy has gone on to like 208 um but uh yeah it was it was a solid group so like we rolled through um but then something else about rotterdam was that the bottle situation remember the bottle situation was very very interesting where they had they had six people who were designated to have their own like bottle jockey so basically when we came up to the water station there was six people who had like a, a, like a, a minion there holding their bottle for them and then every other bottle was just kind of like thrown on a table it was just it was this it was very unorganized just bottles on the table and I went by the first right. bottle. I went by the first bottle station. I didn't even see my bottle. And I just, I was like, all right. I just kept running. And you were gracious enough to, to give me um, some liquid. Give me some of your bottle. Same thing happened at the second bottle station. It was the same thing. I missed. I missed. So I missed my first two bottles. Um, and I was, I was kind of starting to get freaked out and a little bit panicky. I had some. I had a couple of gels on me, but I hadn't got any of my bottles. So then, at, totally. uh, and that's tough, right? That's tough because, you know, at that point, I think we were, we were both kind of had worked with Trent Stellingworth, um, exercise physiologist who works with, a, I think he's a Canadian sport Institute lead, uh, guy now. And, and we were really into, you know, the importance of taking, taking in our fluids that had our carbohydrates and we're worried about getting, you know, a certain amount in, uh, on each bottle whereas you know in the in the 70s and 80s the guys were like yeah whatever I don't I don't need any of that stuff maybe I'll drink a bit of flat coke but but it was like part of the you know an important part of performing well for us at that point so it's definitely something where you're like gonna get freaked out when that goes wrong right yeah what were what was in your bottles on that day ah I think it was Gatorade Endurance which mm -hmm. I uh, uh, or maybe it was Power Bar Endurance, it was called. It was some, yeah, it must have been Power Bar because I know uh, not that Trent was, uh, you know, pu pushing products that, <laughs> that he had been involved in, but he, he had worked for Nestle uh, and Power Bar at one point. He's like, oh, the formula for this is good. Try it. And try, you know, at that point, it's like trial and error and you try stuff that you think works. So I think it was, uh, yeah, Power Bar. Yeah, I had, I had Power Bar strawberry banana gels mixed in with my bottles. And like you were saying, yeah, we were, that was something that we put a lot of thought behind. I mean, Trent's brilliant and he continues to be a brilliant resource for Canadian runners in general. And I think people worldwide, but uh, yeah, like I had like this specific amount of carbohydrate per hour that my stomach has been used to and my stomach can handle. And like this, even like the specific amount of 
like water to like so everything was very dialed in and then you miss your first two it's like ah well this this plan's kind of going to crap so it's like i need my next bottle so i don't i I, i'm pretty sure yeah it was at it was at 15k we came up to the next bottle station and i had to like i had to like stop we had this amazing group i had to stop find my bottle grab my bottle and make sure i had it but during the time i had to do that i probably let the field probably gapped me by about like 10 to 15 seconds and i was all by myself so i was off the back and making sure i got my hydration and then this and so i was i was now in like no man's land and this guy this dutch guy on a motorcycle came up he's like he's like you better catch them soon it's about to get windy because like we were going to turn a corner into, into a headwind so between like 17 and 20k i dropped a nine minute 3k to catch back up to the pack um and, and three I, minute case three minute case and and i it, at the time it felt good it felt manageable because i was quite fit and it was quite early in the race but that's one of the biggest like what ifs in my career i was like what if i didn't have to throw in a nine minute 3k in the middle of my marathon in rotterdam i'm not saying i would have ran 211 that day but i'm thinking i would have run faster because at some point that came and bit me in the butt big time that's super frustrating and i remember at those state those bottle stations you know were chaos anyway and Kuhn was one of those you know six athletes who got his own kind of what do you call him the bottle jockey so yeah like the bottle minion (laughs) whatever so yeah so even if you could find your bottle which on the tables which i luckily did uh we're we're still at a huge disadvantage because some some guy was actually handing the bottle to to coon and so he didn't break his rhythm at all whereas we were like you know every every water um you know every 5k we were, it was like slow down to try and find your bottle and then sprint to catch back up. But, um, I remember when, when you dropped back and we're like, okay, I have to get my bottle this time. And I, I actually, cause I'd given you the, you know, kind of the rest of my bottle on, yeah. on the first two stations. I was like, I look back, you weren't there. I like naively dropped mine on the, on the road in the middle of the road. I was like, Oh, maybe he'll pick it up off the road. And, um, <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, we were, I mean, we were, the, the, you know, those elements of, uh, of chaos, uh, the, me falling at the start, you having to deal with the, uh, with the, with not getting your bottles, the pack was just, we were, we were rolling. Like we, yeah. you, you dropped three minute Ks in that one section, but we were consistently running 303, 305 per K pretty, pretty much. Yeah. It's, uh, did you, do you remember what the half split was? Yeah, I actually pulled it up here. We went through in 104.39. That is rolling. That's rolling. So, so 209.18 pace. So you were, you were on for the Canadian, we were on for the Canadian record. What were your, do you remember your thoughts? What was going through your head at that point in the race? Like where, like, try, you know, obviously we're always reading our body. We're always checking in. Uh, what, what were your thoughts like that right around half? Yeah, I think I, as I recall, I was pretty confident, but at the same time, uh, I think in Toronto in in the fall of 2011, I had gone through in about 104.45, 104.50, and completely blew up. So I felt much better in Rotterdam. It was like a much better day, so my confidence was higher that I could do it, but still not like not completely confident that it would that that we were going to be able to pull it off yeah because that's still that's still very early in a marathon very Um, early yeah what about you what was your mindset dude i thought i had it (laughs) i mean it was it was very early in the marathon still but in my head i was like like 305s right now are feeling chill i can start running 310s 312 so i have to right i just got to get my ass to the finish line and i have i I thought i had a lot of wiggle room and that might have been me being a naive fairly new to the sport still um but even between 20 and 30k 20 and 30k in that race was was fantastic because the pack that we were in it did it kind of it kind of people fell off and it became a little smaller and even for a couple of the bottle stations we got the minions because they were on the motorcycle being like 
you know, it's like these three guys, these four or five guys are coming through now. And then so we got the bottle minions. I remember when that happened, that was fantastic because we were kind of in like no man's land out there in Rotterdam. But between 20 and 30K, everything felt super smooth. Obviously, you had that accumulating fatigue, but even I was comparing it to my first marathon in Houston where I completely blew up. I was like, I feel better today. And in my head, I was just like, I hit 30K and I was like, today's the day. I am having the best day of my life. I'm going to make the Olympics. And I remember almost getting a little bit like emotional. I was like, I can't believe this is yeah. and it was 30 K. Right. <laughs> so I'm a lot of running to go, but I was, I, I was, I thought we had it at 30 K man. Yeah. I remember the same kind of experience with the, uh, with, with the pack as it kind of dwindled down and a few guys fell off the, the energy of the group and the synergy of the group was, was better. And that kind of like, gain confidence everyone just kind of had their spot in the pack and they're going along and the you know there was no sometimes you worry about like if the pacers can do the job or not but mm -hmm. these these guys were like super dialed in and things were just everyone was just grooving and it was uh yeah i think uh you know after halfway between like you say between 20 and 30 the confidence started to build that 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 this could could be the day yeah and then, and then at about 32 kilometers is when I started to be like, ah, this is getting really hard. And, and you know what, man, by the time I hit 36 K, I couldn't see straight and my day was over. It's so weird how that happens in a marathon. Um, I, ca I can't put my finger on it. I went from feeling like the best I've ever felt to feeling like I could just lie down and die within like 20 minutes. And it was, it was, it was ridiculous. So uh, long story short, I had a massive blow up and it started about 36 K and, and my pace tanked. Uh, I ended up running two thirteen twenty nine, I want to say, or something like that. Um, or two thirteen thirty eight, I think. Yeah. two thirteen thirty eight, And I crossed the finish line. I immediately threw up, passed out, got taken to medical. I was done. So whatever. I don't have the glorious finish, but so our races kind of went a separate way at about 32 kilometers. I remember, I remember seeing you just gallop off into the distance and I was like, why aren't my legs working anymore? Right. So, uh, what talk us through that last 10 minutes. I mean, sorry, 10 kilometers of that race for you. Yeah, I think I think at the at about the point where things started to break up, um, where the group started to split, it, we I think our pace maybe kind of fell off a little bit uh, between twenty five and thirty. And I remember the uh, there was one pacer left for for Kuhn, and they were falling off to ten pace. So they made a big they made a big move, and that was kind of the time where you had to like make the call to you know to go with it or not and i i didn't go with it i was like i remember making the conscious decision that i remember my coach said to me beforehand um just play it safe like don't don't go for it, it just try and get in under the time and it it seemed like the move that those guys made was a bit aggressive um i think Polish guy kind of backed off as as well, uh, but we were still rolling, right? And and thirty to thirty five was still good for me. I think at that point I really started focusing on my splits because up to then it's just like just stay with the pack. Yeah. There's no reason yeah. to look to look at your watch like you don't. It's not going to matter. Um, but at that point it was uh, I got to thirty five and I was still on still on pace, but things were, things were starting to get hard. I think my stomach was starting to get a little, you know, not, not like mm -hmm. Biwa stomach, but, uh, I was feeling it a bit. Um, and at that point I was just focused on one K at a time. And like, I, I didn't wear a GPS watch. I don't know if I had a GPS watch back then. So it was just kind of like one kilometer marker to the next was like my gauge on on how I was doing. So you're just like as focused as you possibly possibly can be for those three minutes. And, yeah. and I remember you, I, I would, you know, have an eye on the next uh, kilometer mark and just be like, Oh, please let this be a three. Oh, something. K. 
and I remember between you know at between 35 and 37 or 38 there was a few like 314s 315s and I was like ah, I, I thought I was losing it um, and, and was falling off pace but I think by 38 uh, I just kind of buckled down like a little bit more uh, and saw like a 304 or a 305 and I was like okay this is it and that's nice. that's like what I needed to see um, got to 40k and at that point I knew that you know I, I would have to really fall apart to not get it so it was really at that point it was like an internal battle the, the Polish guy had fallen off by about 36k and Kuhn was in front of me and I was I was kind of chasing him but he was far enough ahead that it wasn't really like I'm going to catch him it was just mm -hmm. more like tr try and keep him in your sights and uh, I got to the, I think you make the final turn onto the, the main drag with like 500 to go and it was like I did a little mental math and knew I had it at that point I just started I started celebrating uh like I won the race doing, doing like fist bumps and stuff and people I remember like making eye contact with a few people and a few people like having a having a laugh they're like chuckling because I was like so into it and they probably didn't know the context for me that it was like I was yeah you know gonna gonna qualify for for the Olympics at that stage of the game so I, it, it was kind of awkward when I crossed the finish line because I was so excited. I ran 210.47, and Kuhn had finished about 10 seconds in front of me. I think he was 210.36, he's 210.35, and uh, he was so disappointed. He missed, he missed the Dutch standard by 35 seconds. And so I was, like, celebrating, uh, and he was not. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and it was kind of weird because I was like so happy, crossed the line, and there's like you know there's no one there to share that with. Um, yeah. I remember trying to, I remember trying to, I tried to wait for you because I didn't know at that point like, I still thought you had a chance there, right? So uh, you know after letting it soak in for a few seconds, I turned around to see where you're at, and like you know the clock ticks by. It's like ah oh, shit, he's not gonna make it. Um, but then they like. The, the, the like race officials just pushing me along. They're like, no, I'm like, I'm just waiting for my friend. I just want to come across the line. Like, no, you got to go. Get out of here. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so yeah, so that was, that was it. It was kind of like, uh, I didn't get to see you finish. Uh, just kind of like made my way back to, to where your stuff is. And like, I think I got back to, to the elite area and, uh, send a few text messages or whatever and that was that was it that was a big day yeah so what was what was the first text was it to rich or to francine Ooh, this is gonna be uh i don't i don't know if i'm gonna let francine i think i think i text rich first actually um yeah. it had been uh yeah it had been a big commitment uh, on his part and he he did a lot and we were we were really in that uh in that build together, those few few years uh, leading up to that were were you know a lot of hard work and a lot of commitment. So he was, uh, yeah, I think he was the first one that that I let know. And then Francine, very shortly after. <laughs> yeah, and then Rich probably responded with like, "Good work, recover well, <laughs> <laughs> get, yeah, get in a nice bath." <laughs> Totally, something very practical and uh, not not over the top at all. Just uh, the straight shooter that he is yeah and then um that was also a really big day for a couple of the uh, canadian women um because lanny and chris also ran good races that day so um after the race you go back to your hotel to collect yourself i eventually dragged my ass out of the medical tent to back to my hotel and i sat in the bathtub for about an hour drinking beer um calling people and then and then we met up for afterwards and i remember you couldn't even walk because your feet were so shredded yeah that was rough i remember my toes were like yeah they had just been destroyed i had like four or five black toenails um from that race but that's something that like during the race you don't even maybe you like feel it but those are the sort of things 
in a race like that that you can totally just push to the back of your mind and then uh you know a few hours later once the adrenaline has has worn off a bit you're like oh man this is this is uh this is kind of bad oh yeah like you'll, you'll be in the race and like you'll be like the thought will be like my feet are going to be meat like just just ground beef after this race but you're like all right whatever cool let's keep going so then we went to the world's uh least exciting uh, after party because we were all just dead we're like all right they had two beers and went to bed um and yeah so i guess i guess it was uh that's a day i look back obviously i didn't qualify for the olympics but that was a day that that showed me that I could keep on running because I went from being a 216 guy to a 213 guy. And just it's like, okay, all that hard work was worth something. It, obviously I didn't make the Olympics, but a three minute PB is pretty dang good. I'm going to keep running. I'm going to keep on this sport. But obviously at that point I was kind of like a, uh, I, I was obviously not going to be living in Guelph anymore. And I was kind of up in the air and you were qual and you had, a, you, and you were training because now you had to go right into like almost like Olympic mode. Yeah. Um, so what did your recovery look like? Like, did you just like, what was, cause you, you had been in Flagstaff. Like what, what did the transition after the race for you? Yeah, I had been in Flagstaff and, uh, I think from there I went back to Vancouver, um, from Rotterdam. I went back to Vancouver briefly and then it was, it was pretty quick turnaround, um, to be like, get back into marathon mode. I think I went back to, I definitely went back to Ontario for a bit. Francine was living in Ottawa at the time. I went to visit her there. Maybe I went back to Kingston. Um, I remember going to Guelph for, they did like a, the the committee did, did like an announcement. So I kind of maybe for a week or two after the race kind of bounced around, but I don't, I was, I was pretty like focused and determined from like, you know, a day after the Rotterdam Marathon to to turning my attention to to the Olympics. Like you say, the post the post race celebrations were were pretty lame. Even though that was like you know, uh, as things go in history, like a pretty monumental day for for Canadian marathoning, both for men and women. I think at the time that was the second fastest time that uh, uh, that I ran, and and Lanny and Krista, who both, uh, as I recall, were kind of not not really well known prior to then, hadn't run. I think they both ran like eight or nine minute PBs, right? To run yeah, yeah. under. Did they both run under two thirty that day? No, I think they were both two thirty low. Or I don't remember exactly their times, but they were huge breakthrough races for both of them. And yeah, because you ran the yeah. second fast, you ran the second fast any time ever. Um, Lanny and Chris both crushed it. I had no, I had, a, I had a, I had a decent day based on what I had coming in. It was a big day. I, I always get a kick out of, cause you could live, you could follow like live track those races, not as good as you can now, but like back, you get a split like every 5k, every 5k, every 5k. And Gillis was on, he was there and his qualifying time was 211.30, right? So if everyone, anyone ran faster than him, he had potentially get bumped off. So he would have seen us come through half in like 64 40 or and he would have I, I just like to think in his head he was like oh no oh no oh no right and then he would have got the 30k split and we're sort of like even like oh no and then and but then he also probably knew me he's like rob rob might just blow up um but yeah that was that was a, that was a big day because that was huge huge i don't like to, to send three canadian males to the olympics that was a big deal because we had like yeah it was before, I, we hadn't had anyone in a long time canadian marathoning sucked for a long time yeah, it was a uh, yeah. I, th- I don't. I couldn't recall the last time that we sent three. I know we sent one or maybe two for uh, for a while from kind of '96 back. But um, yeah, it had been it had been a long time. And for the women, um, I know they were. Did they petition to get on the team that year? Because they actually ran under the um, international Olympic Committee standard, but the Canadian the athletics Canada always had always set a harder standard, which they didn't quite meet. So it was yeah. like, they were, you know, they were making kind of big breakthroughs too for the sport. And then they obviously went on to, to make it in Rio and both break yeah. the Canadian record at one point and stuff. So, uh, 
it, it, was, it was a pretty, we were kind of a motley crew of, of the four of us there, but in the end, everyone kind of went on to, to do, you know, bigger and better things from there. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, Lanny went and broke the Canadian record the, that 2013 in Toronto. Um, Krista made the Olympics, so yeah, it was a it was it was a bit of a turning point day, um, and and it was it was a great day, and it's a, it's a day I look back with off awesome memories. Um, yeah, I just and you, there's some pretty epic photos of you celebrating in that last hundred meters, and uh, it is it's uh, yeah it was it was a good day, and uh, yeah, and I think it had it had ramifications both professionally in running and then with what we we're doing now um that's a, that's a story for another day but uh yeah so just thinking back on this rotterdam marathon on rotterdam weekend unfortunately it's not happening this year but it'll hopefully happen again next year and it's always it's it's it's, it's one of the best races going and uh yeah so thanks for uh thanks for reliving the tale with me man yeah thanks thanks for taking me down uh down memory lane it was it was fun once, you know, once in a while I'll, I'll reflect, uh, more so on kind of the, the training I've done because the, the young guys that are, that Rich Lee is coaching now, they'll often do some training and be like, Oh, what did, you know, what did Dylan do back in the day or whatever? And so we'll, we'll look back at that stuff, but I haven't thought about, uh, I haven't thought about this race in, in a long time. So it was fun. And like you say, it kind of, it, it kind of led us down, down a path to be close to friends and then uh, eventually colleagues and stuff. So it's, it's pretty neat. Yeah, man. Yeah. It was, it was good. Yeah. I like every so often I'll, I'll think about these old races and I'm like, I want to like, I'm still somewhat young. I can still train and, and be good again. And then I look at the training I did. And I was like, yeah, I'm not doing that again. So, but it, it was, I mean, it was like, a t you know, we were training hard, making, making lots of sacrifices. You know, you were, you were probably living in your, in your brother's spare bedroom. I was living in some people that I kind of barely knew. I was, they were nice <laughs> enough to, to take me in and Flagstaff and I lived in their spare bedroom and you're just kind of like, you're just existing with this goal that, you know, who knows how realistic it really is when you're, when you're living it, but you're just, you're there and doing it. And that's what, that's, that's kind of, you know, your whole purpose at that time. And it's, yeah, I, I look back at it and I admire myself for kind of making the sacrifices that I did. And because like you say, I mean, we're at different stages of life now, but it's, uh, it's not easy to, 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 you know, kind of invest in yourself and believe in yourself and do, do the things that, that, that make the sacrifices that we did to, to train the way we did. It is, it is true. It's a lifestyle that most of society can't really understand or wrap their head around, but it was, it's a time in my life that I look back and I would, wouldn't change a thing. Maybe, maybe I would have got better bottle situation in Rotterdam, but yeah, I wouldn't change a thing about that lifestyle being that, that runner chasing the dream. Uh, so yeah, man, it was, that was a good time. Um, thanks again. Uh, maybe we'll circle back on some other races and, uh, but until then, man, thanks for, uh, thanks for chatting. Thanks, Robbie. Talk to you soon. I'm going to pause this recording here.